please give a warm round of applause to Dr. Rick Scarborough. Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> the way Paul and I met was quite unique. I had the privilege of, of being the keynote speaker at the last Reclaiming America National Conference uh, for Dr. D. James Kennedy. He was on our advisory board. I considered him a mentor. No one knew at that time he was about to die. Uh, but I was uh, finishing a three-day conference with the last message. And uh, about 800 preachers in the audience and their wives. And that stayed Presbyterian Church. He wouldn't, let me, he wouldn't let me get in the main pulpit. They had, a, they had a Protestant pulpit for the rest of us that I preached out of. But uh, I still got to preach in that storied church. But at the end of the message, I asked a rhetorical question. Of course, if you played college and professional football and had your head hit that many times, you would know what a rhetorical question is. So I said, who'll stand with me? Bam, I hit the pulpit. Who'll stand with me? Bam, I hit the pulpit. And one man stood up about six foot, eight inches tall and shouted, I will. And that's how I met our, our leader, Paul Blair. Uh, we'd never met before, but he stood up in the midst of that crowd and said, I will. And he has ever since. And it's a case where the pupil has far exceeded the teacher. What God is using him to do now, I believe, is profoundly important. Now, let's, let's take a few minutes. And I was asked to share a story. Some of you have heard this story. Uh, it's been written about not only by myself, but in other uh, periodicals and, and a few books as well. Uh, this whole thing was called America at the Crossroads, a 911 call for Patriot pastors. Now, I want to share with you how I became a Patriot pastor. Let's go to the next slide, please. There are two worldviews right now competing for America. Would you agree with that? Well, let me show you what happens when two worldviews collide. Here's a picture of two uh, trains. Somebody forgot to flip a switch and the wreckage and carnage was unfathomable. That's what's about to happen in America. These two worldviews are now colliding. Next slide. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I hope you've read about this man. Uh, he was a part of the Confessing Church in Germany. He witnessed the rise of Adolf Hitler. He and a handful of martyrs took a stand of Adolf Hitler while the rest of the church bowed down and bought in and uh, began to, uh, to Nazify their preaching. This man was executed on April the 9th, 1945, just days before the concentration camp was, was liberated where he was being held for the charge of defying Adolf Hitler and the Nazi uh, philosophy. He was hung by a piano wire because they wanted it to be excruciatingly painful for this man of God. He said, uh, he made a famous declaration. Uh, he said this, silence in the face of evil, God will, excuse me, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Do you believe with that? Agree with that? Let's read it together. Uh, I didn't read it very well, so let's back up and let's read it together. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. Next slide. We've arrived, ladies and gentlemen, at a Bonhoeffer moment. This is our time. You could have lived at any time in the history of this country... 
But God not only graced you with the privilege of being born again, and that's an assumption on my part. If you're not, uh, believe me, I can help you with that. But assuming that you're saved, you not only were saved, but you were saved in America. Now, if you're not going to stand up and fight for this great country, then move to China or some other country. You've been graced with the greatest freedom the world has ever known in terms of a, of a, of a government allowing its people to be free. All of that's being eradicated right now and stolen by the, the, the new dictators of, of our government. We've got to stand as Bonhoeffer did. Next slide. I was asked to give my story. I pastored First Baptist Church of Pearland from 1990 until 2002. That building was concluded in the year 2000. Uh, the original building was in what was then called downtown Pearland, a city of 19,000 residents at the time. We still had cattle grazing on the major thoroughfares in the middle of Pearland. When they invited me down for a, in view of, of, a, of a call to be the pastor of that church, uh, my wife and I spent a few days uh, quietly with no one knowing it, and we drove around and looked over the community and to see just what the opportunities were. But I had an idea. I said, how far is this church from downtown Houston? It didn't seem to be that far. So I went to downtown Houston, and I took the shortest route, which was Old Highway 35, and I discovered that that church was 12 miles from downtown Houston. And yet there were cattle grazing in the middle of town, the major thoroughfare. You could go 40 miles south, 40 miles west, 40 miles north, and it was nothing but Bogopolis, just rolling population. Third largest city in the world now, or in America, I should say. But Pearland was an old country town where the good old boys ran everything. Next slide. Uh, we began seeing people saved from the first day. I was an evangelist before going to First Baptist Church of Pearland. Spent 14 years conducting over 500 crusades. It wasn't uncommon in our crusade ministry to see two or 300 professions of faith a week. So you would imagine, as a pastor, I'd have a bent toward evangelism. In the first 18 months we were in that church, we baptized over 500 people. And it was euphoric. Everybody was excited. One day we had a grand and glorious service just like we'd had for 18 months when a lady walked out the back of the church and said, Preacher, are you going to that high school assembly tomorrow? Well, I didn't want to look absolutely ignorant, but I didn't even know there was a high school assembly. So I inquired, and the reason she assumed I knew is because every student in the high school had to take home a, a piece of paper describing the content of the assembly and if you didn't want your child to attend, you had to sign that slip and send it back and they would be sent off to study hall. Well, we had two high kids in the high school. One was a senior whom we transferred in the middle of her junior year. I remember whenever we were extended the call, we were in the hotel when the word came to us that there was a, almost a unanimous call to be a pastor of that church. And so we held hands, the five of us, the three children, my wife and I, and we prayed about God's direction in this new phase of ministry. And I remember I looked at my wife and I said, honey, how do you feel? She said, I believe this is God's will. I looked over at Richard, my son. How do you feel? He was, he was excited. He, this is God's will. I looked at Catherine. She was only in the sixth grade. She was jumping up and down, something new. Yes. But our daughter, who was a junior in high school, looked me right in the eye and said, this ain't God's will, daddy. 
And of course, you can understand why. Pulling her out of, of a place where she was comfortable with friends she'd grown up with, she just had no interest in becoming a stranger in a large high school. But that was a decision that God, that I had to ultimately make. And we decided to move. The first 18 months for her were pretty difficult. Then one day, this announcement was made that tomorrow we're going to have a high school assembly. Uh, the AIDS Foundation of Houston is sending a speaker, and uh, she's going to talk about uh, how to avoid AIDS. Uh, she's going to talk about sex. Well, my daughter and my son, my daughter had the, had the car. She was a, a senior. My son rode home with her. He was uh, uh, in the ninth grade, just had started high school. And I'm sure they had a conversation between them. Should we show this to Dad? And I'm sure it went something like this, and I'm sure of it because I said this in their presence, and they don't deny it. Do you think we should show this to Dad? Well, you know how he is. He'll get all bent out of shape. You know, we can handle it. He'll never even know about it. Well, if that isn't the way a high school student thinks, to think the pastor of the largest church in the community is not going to hear about this assembly like that. Well, we never heard a word from them, but I heard on, about it on Sunday morning. My wife and I communicated after church, and we decided, you know, we've raised this kid's these kids to be a discerner of right and wrong. Let's not make a big deal out of it. Let's let them go. But I called Rod Compton in. You know, I used to brag I was just like Moses because I leaned on my rod and my staff. Rod was the staff. And I said, Rod, I want you to go down and monitor the first assembly and just kind of watch it. And, and here was my thinking. How bad can it be? When I was in high school, we had sex education. In 1967... Uh, they took all the boys in the boys' gym, all the girls in the girls' gym, and they showed us one hour of 16-millimeter projection images of people with gonorrhea, syphilis, and all the results of those diseases. We saw people with their teeth falling out and derangement and uh, you know raving lunatics, and they basically said, if you do this, you'll get that. And you talk about... You talk about putting the fear of God in you. It took us about three years of married life to get over our one hour of sex education. And so, you know, I knew it was a little more sophisticated by, by the year 2002 than that. But I thought, you know, my kids can handle it. Well, we had a visiting minister, a prospective minister, because the church was growing in town that whole day of the assembly. And I'd committed the whole day to show him around and talk with him and his wife and so I asked Rod to cover this assembly. About 10 o'clock, he came into my office. You'd have to meet Rod. I mean, Rod's a throwback to preachers 100 years ago. Doesn't go to movies. He can't say sex in mixed company. I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty old-fashioned. Rod came in my office. We had this visiting minister sitting across from me, and he would not repeat what he'd just seen. I could not get him to say the words. All I could say was, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. So I headed our guest over to Rod for lunch, and I went down to the fifth of five assemblies. Now, Rod had gotten permission, but I didn't have time for all that, so I just slipped into this crowded auditorium. They had five assemblies, this large 5A high school. I sat right in the back, and wouldn't you know it, I saw Misty halfway between me and the speaker. So I said to myself, don't make a scene. And I did really good for 20 minutes. This young lady came out cracking jokes and telling stories. She was about 24 years of age. And then she got down to business. She began describing uh, every kind of sex act you can imagine and some you probably shouldn't imagine. 
She talked about oral sex and anal sex, every kind of sex. And then she said, you'll be safe as long as you use one of these. And she pulled out a condom, stretched it, and blew it up like a balloon. Now, by this time, you know, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. And she's holding this thing up, and she turns around with the other hand, and she writes 97, or excuse me, 94% on a whiteboard. And then she said to my daughter, as she had to my son in an earlier assembly, she said, if you use a condom, you can have sex, and there'll be no consequences. You won't have to worry about this new disease, which was at that time called GRIDS, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Boy, was that not politically correct, quickly changed to AIDS, but at that time still called GRID. You know, because this disease, this is 1992, it's a fairly new disease, hasn't been on the scene very long. I, like many of you, was researching all the, the, the things that could happen and how it was contracted. And I had, a, had been preparing to preach a series of messages to educate our church family about the dangers of sex outside of marriage and especially this new disease called GRIDS. So I had a lot of facts at my disposal as God had prepared me. Um, she's right in the middle of her speech and I'm in a suit like today and I raised my hand. She thought I was a principal, no doubt, because she was very courteous. She said, yes, sir. And I'm telling you, Missy's head turned around and saw me, and she almost passed out. I mean, she had no idea that I'd been in that auditorium. I said, ma'am, where did you get that statistic? She said, the CDC went right back into her planned remarks. I'm certain I was the only one in the room that knew she was saying, Center for Disease Control, Atlanta, Georgia. And you know what? They didn't claim that. Now, that statistic was true if you went to a drugstore and bought a certain... Pro and if you kept it in a cool place, it wasn't the kind of condom that teenagers bought at a, uh, at a 25 cent machine in a restroom of, a, of, of some service station and then stuck in the glove box at 110 degrees Fahrenheit in Houston until you needed it. They were almost porous. And so I knew what she was saying was not factual. So I raised my hand the second time. You know what she did? She ignored me. You know it's hard to ignore? The pastor of the largest church in the community who's seated in the back of a high school auditorium that where they're talking about condoms and sex with his hand up. I'm telling you, every kid in that room was networking. Who is that guy? That's Misty's dad. That's the pastor of First Baptist Church. And it was just like a rumble going through the entire audience. Finally, in exasperation, with red splotches now breaking out on her neck, the pastor side of me wanted to go up and hug the young lady. I mean, I felt sorry for her. She said, yes, sir, real hatefully the second time. I said, ma'am, in fact, I called her Amy. That was her name. I said, Amy, I've read everything that the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia has printed on this subject, I think. And nowhere do they claim condoms to be that effective, especially the kind these kids are carrying around. Well, she didn't know what to say. So another teacher across the room stood to her feet, challenged me and said, what Amy said is correct. I've read these statistics in a teen magazine. I, I, I wanted to look at this woman. I just, I just couldn't believe it. We're giving life and death information to our teenagers from a teen magazine. But you know, I have a little sophistication. 
And so I realized this wasn't the time to have an argument with this teacher and make a fool out of her. So I said, well, thank you. And I sat down. But you know, I'd had the forethought to take my pocket recorder. Those were the days of dictaphones. And I could get 30 minutes, 15 minutes on either side. And now I started taping her remarks. In fact, I'd started a little earlier. And I had 30 minutes of her 40-minute presentation. I just sat there. At that point, she went into a, a, a monologue about her own sex life, told how she was living out of wedlock with her boyfriend. She herself was AIDS-infected, but he was not. But he was safe because they always practice, quote, safe sex. Only God knows how many young lives were lost that day. When it was over, everybody had to pass by where I was seated to get out of the building. And I'm telling you, there was a lot of different reactions. I had some kids very courteous. Thank you, Pastor. Some just stared at me with anger. And a few told me what they were thinking. Teachers all went the other way. But I just sat there. Finally, Missy made her way to me. You know what she did? Something I will treasure till I die and never forget. She threw both arms around my neck. She planted a kiss on this cheek, and here's what she said. Dad, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. That was like saying sick it to a cur dog. At that point, it didn't matter if I got fired. I was fair to do it at the church. It didn't matter what. The largest employer in the city at that point was our Pearland school system. And so there were a whole lot of our folks in that school system. But it didn't matter. Because in the first place, I knew I was right. In the second place, I had the support of my own high school daughter. And I wasn't certain I was going to get that. Well, I waited around. And when everyone cleared, I walked up to see Amy. Four teachers stood shoulder to shoulder between me and Amy. I guess they thought I was going to beat her up. I said, Amy, oh, wait, she said before I could speak, I'm here because I love these kids. I said, Amy, I'm sure you do. I do too. In fact, when you leave, I'm going to stay because my love called me to this city. I said, but what you said today wasn't true. And you likely condemned some of these kids to a terrible death. And I turned and walked out. Now, I went straight to the telephone in my office and I called Cactus Cagle, that was, that's what we called him. He, he went on to become a county judge, but he was a practicing attorney, an activist. I'd met him in pro-life uh, efforts. I called him up and I said, Cactus, I just secretly recorded a high school assembly. If I make it public, can I be sued? He said, let me check it out, preacher. Now, I want you to understand, in the two hours intervening, I came to the firm commitment that I was going to make this tape public because parents had a right to know what was being taught their kids. The only choice I was going to make is, do I do this as Rick Scarborough father, citizen, or Rick Scarborough pastor, which had altogether different implications. When he called me back, he said, Rick, in Texas, public, in, uh, public assemblies, public information. You can do whatever you want to. Then I called in our minister of miscellaneous. That's what we called our our agenda, I said, I want you to put up on our signboard out front, if you want to hear what students heard at PHS, Perlin High School, come Sunday morning. Now, between the 400 kids in that particular assembly and that signboard on the busiest thoroughfare on the southeast side of Houston, Sunday, our church exploded. 
10 or 15 minutes before the service, a couple of men came in and said, Pastor, we can't get anybody else in. I said, then ask our people to stand. Take them over to the gym. I said, get everybody in you can. When I walked out, it was, it was like Easter all over. You know, Easter Sunday uh, is, is a, an incredible day for all of us, but that's when all the CEOs come. You know, the Christmas Easter only crowd, they're all there. Well, I looked up and they were back. Well, you know, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I was an old evangelist. I had half a dozen sermons I knew by heart. So I set aside my planned remarks. I stood up and I held up the 12-page assembly, single space. I said, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. And then I preached, hell hot, heaven sweet, Jesus saves, and gave a gospel invitation. And we had people saved that morning. We often did. Then I set them down. Now they're on their time. I said, "Uh, it's going to take me about half an hour to do this. So if you need to leave, you're, you're dismissed. By the way, it's X-rated. So if you don't want your kids to hear it, uh, we provided daycare, care over in the gym. And so I gave them five minutes to leave or to take care of their children. And then I read that high school assembly word for word, line for line, just like she said it. Four-letter words and all. She gave technical descriptions, and then she gave the street jargon. There's some little old ladies, if they're still alive in Pearland, that still can't believe they heard what their pastor said that morning. You know, sometimes we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. It was my conviction. I I wasn't proud of doing that. But if it was good enough for the kids, I thought the parents should know it. And boy, I couldn't have predicted the reaction. Those good old boys in Pearland, most of whom had gone to that high school, when I got through, they were ready to go burn down the high school. One of them said, what are we going to do about this preacher? I said, well, in the first place, we're going to calm down and we're just going to, we're going to take this through proper channels. I've already requested a called school board meeting. It'll meet a week from Monday. Well, the next morning, my phone rang at about six o'clock and somebody said, preacher, are you up? I hated to tell him, you know, your pastor, if he's got any sense, after he preaches all day Sunday, is not up at six. I don't know what I said. I hope I didn't lie, but. The intent was, go get the Chronicle in your front yard. So I did. In the second section of the Houston Chronicle, banner headline, Baptist Preacher Takes on PHS, and a whole page dedicated. You see, turns out a Chronicle reporter had seen our signboard and had come and heard me on Sunday morning. They held it off, uh, they printed it the next day, and now my phone is ringing from from media across the country. My wife and I loaded up. We got care for our children. We headed for the hill country. And I I hid and secluded myself for a number of days, prayed and fasted. I'd been given five minutes to speak to the school board the following Monday. Hardest message you'll ever preach is a five-minute message. It takes hours to prepare that. It don't take five minutes to prepare an hour sermon. Amen? When I got to the school board meeting the next week, cars were everywhere. I walked in. They'd already moved it twice to a third location finally to to contain all the people who came. About half of our Sunday morning attendance. We ran 1,100 just in the sanctuary. They had lined up six other speakers, including the local Assembly of God minister who'd been there longer than anybody else. Excuse me, Presbyterian minister. His name... Uh, was Casey Jones. Isn't that an interesting name? I, uh, that's, he, 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 uh, and I tell you what, 
His whole job was to make me look like an idiot. He knew it. They had two students speak. They had a couple of teachers speak, one at large, and then they had Casey. Casey simply assumed I was a fundamaniac and, and uh, I was against all form of sex education. The kids needed education. And boy, he just laced into me. And boy, they applauded for it. Then it was my turn. I walked up. I was courteous. I looked them right in the eye. And then I read my planned remarks and told them what had happened. Do you know the school board, not a one of them actually knew the content of the assembly? They were parents just like me. They had hired a principal. They assumed he'd do the right thing. And when they heard the content, the actual content, boy, they went from angry to inquisitive. And then they started asking me questions. I went up standing up there about 20 minutes. Now, here's the official outcome. The principal was fired for other official reasons. I was asked to put four of our people on a committee to revisit sex education. We wound up buying $4,000 worth of, uh, of, of uh, educational material, a lot of them focused on the family, so they could go in the library and learn the biblical approach to marriage and to sex. And then I went to visit the pastor of the Presbyterian Church. He was courteous. He had me in. He put out an article in the paper just castigating what I'd done. We had a local newspaper, the Pearland Journal. He had been writing for years. He was there 15 or so years before I got there. And so he had an article, and he wrote all about this high school assembly. just lambasted me. That came out before my remarks. So I went to his office. I said, Casey, do you have any idea what you're publicly defending? Yeah, you're, you're, you're trying to shut down sex education. Did I just... Somewhere hand, all right. I said, would you do me the favor of reading the content of the assembly? And he started reading. And every now and then he'd just say, oh my, oh my, oh my. When he put it down, he said, Pastor Scarborough... I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I said, that's great. I accept your apology. But you know what? You did this in front of the whole community. You need to apologize in front of the community. The following Monday, his article came out. Public apology. And then the following Sunday, I walked out and there sat Casey and his elders on the front row of our church. My men knew this. They helped arrange it. They removed the pulpit and they had a, a chair there. Casey came up, invited by our chairman of deacons, and he said, Pastor Scarborough, will you forgive me for what I've done? I said, of course, Casey. He said, would you come up on the platform? I sat down in that seat. He unlaced my shoes, pulled off my socks, and washed my feet as he and I wept. And I don't have time to tell you about the revival that broke out. But it broke out. This is going up instead of down. How, what, what is the deal? Tell me when to quit and I'll quit. Oh, easy. In fact, I, I, I'm hungry, so before then. Uh, I'm just kidding. I, but I, really, you need to see, I don't often get to tell the whole story. Uh, he and I became best friends. 
There's much more to this story I could tell you. Uh, just before all that happened, where the animosity really built, was the first week I was, or the first year I was there, there was on the national uh, prayer day, I called up Casey because he was head of the Ministerial Alliance. I said, man, why don't we sponsor a meeting at City Hall and we can get all the preachers and all the people and we'll just pray like crazy. He said, are you kidding me? That's the day we meet at the country club and the bank buys our lunch. I said, really? So I just simply got permission and I called our people and we had prayer and we put it in the paper and now all the preachers are down there eating lunch and we're down here having a prayer meeting. Right at 12, here comes about 10 cars filled with those pastors. They file out of their cars and I'm elated. I call Casey up. I give all of them an opportunity to pray and then I follow them down to the country club. When I walk in, he lit into me like you wouldn't believe. The audacity of you putting us on the spot like that. That's the relationship we had before he washed my feet. Boy, he wasn't expecting. I don't know what, what, how my predecessor had handled things like that. When he got on my case, folks, I was evangelist first. I was, I'm accustomed to fighting. I laced into him, told him what I thought. And you know what? When it was over, the only one stood with me was the local black minister. I was hoping he was going to be here this week. Harold Gentry. He's still pastoring there at the Tabernacle Church. So this is all rocking on. That's all the background. But now it's been healed. The city fathers come to us. That was the hundredth year of the centennial celebration for Paraland. They said, hey guys, as ministers, would you like to sponsor something? I said, Casey, why don't we have a crusade that we all sponsor? He said, do you know anybody that could do it? I said, sure, Jay Strack, best there is. And so we had this huge centennial crusade. The night before the crusade, we had an all-night prayer meeting. And Casey and I and many of our folks, but he and I, arm in arm, in front of the community, we walked around the track at the football stadium all night and prayed. We had 300 professions of faith out of that. And I'm telling you, everything in Pearland began to change. You go to Pearland now, there's a 100,000 people living there. Because once godly people got involved in government, they began to play fairly and developers wanted to be there 12 miles we fought a battle against the school board four of our people wound up on that school board after that was over out of, out of seven that was so much fun we ran our people for city council the first election there was only one open seat but there were already two good guys so one of our men the chairman of deacons got elected now there's a three five majority one of the guys that didn't like anything about that was a guy named randy weber he was a local member of a, a church that didn't believe that Christians ought to be involved in politics. I guess he checked his at the door at the time. Uh, but he didn't like it. But he couldn't deny something good was going on. His daughter started going to our, our youth events. So one Sunday morning, I looked up in the back of the church was Randy Weber and his wife. Well, I went down the aisle after the service, called him before he could leave. I said, hey, Randy, good to have you. Let's have lunch. He and I became good friends. I baptized he and his son into our church. The rest of his family had a Baptist background. He went on and ran for the state legislature and was twice awarded the most conservative member of the state legislature. Two other of our members followed him in suit. One is still serving. The other died in office. And then Randy ran for U.S. Congress. And when I spent 18 months commuting back and forth to D.C., guess whose office we had Bible study in? My former adversary in the city council. In the meantime, my 
Secretary's wife, who's a lawyer, left private practice, ran for district attorney, or excuse me, district judge. He's still in that position these 20-something years later. Christian Amanpour showed up and followed me around with a camera. Uh, they titled the, the documentary, God's Warriors. A quarter of the whole program, two hours long, was about Rick Scarborough and his radical agenda. She closed it, if you watched it, it was aired five times, won awards. She said, Rick Scarborough's games will be short-lived. I love to tell anybody to listen, you be the judge. We still have one in the state legislature. One is now in Congress. I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes a senator. He's distinguishing himself, and he's never for a moment wavered in his values. A young man who was just about 25 years old at the time is this year running as may, for mayor, and he's going to get elected because it's a Republican area and he's already won the nomination. But he's running for mayor of a city of 100,000 now. The people from that little experience with freedom in 12 years have changed the whole atmosphere of that part of Houston. And you know what my story is to you guys? You'd be amazed at what you could do if you just tried if you would release your people run for city council, a little bit of salt goes a long way. If we'd start cultivating our people to run for state government, we could actually change the direction of our country. You see, the next step is also getting godly people to run for public office. You got to be careful. One of the first guys that ran for school board I mean, he seemed like the perfect candidate. I didn't know him very well, but he was in church every Sunday. And he wasn't on the, on the school board a month when I started hearing that he was using God's name in vain. And so I simply got another one of our members. We took him out. He left our church. You see, folks, uh, you won't always get it right every time. But I tell you, I'd rather mess up and have to correct it than never try. And my story... The Lord has opened doors all over the country, giving me opportunities I never dreamed possible. Jerry Falwell took me all over the country just to tell people what, what God had done in Pearland. I've appeared in news stories. I've been in the national press. And I'm here, standing here speaking to you. All I ever wanted to be coming out of, uh, of, of college was an evangelist. I was president of the FCA. I was in love with Jesus in college. I was part-time youth pastor. I never thought about pe speaking to lots of people. But you see, the Bible says God reveals himself from faith to faith. If you're faithful in little things, he'll make you master over great things. And who knows but what a governor is not sitting in this room right now. I, I, I ministered to several ministers who walked away from their public ministry because God called them to Congress. We had a lot of our Bible studies in Pastor Jody Heiss's office, whom I met traveling around the country with Alan Keyes doing Ten Commandment rallies. He got ignited, he got a radio program, and he's in his third or fourth tour, or I should say, uh, stint in Congress. He's the spokesperson for the Freedom Caucus, the most conservative wing of the Republican Party. We need to change. We need to win this election. Then you need to go back and change your school boards. And you need to change your local city council. And you need to catch a vision of running your people in office. Jack Hibbs took what we did in a small community 
and did it in a suburb of Los Angeles. What he didn't tell you is the reason his church has never been closed is all the people that were closing are members of his church. People he's run for office. Gentlemen, ladies, we've had three days to drink it in. Now we need to go and practice what we've heard and change America. Father, I thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.